Before we begin today's show, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Posh Virtual Receptionists. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Peter J. Hammer, one of the authors of No Equal Justice, The Legacy of Civil Rights Icon George W. Crockett Jr. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here with you, Lee. Now, before we get into the life of George Crockett, uh, I would really like to hear about how this project came about. Can you tell my listeners a little bit about yourself and your co-author, Edward J. Littlejohn? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a it's an interesting story. Ed is one of our emeritus professors at, at Wayne State University Law School, where I teach. Uh, and Ed Act actually retired before I started. So I never got the chance to actually uh, collaborate with Ed uh, while he was uh, active on the faculty. Uh, but we started doing some projects together. Uh, and he proposed, uh, amongst that kind of, 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 of beginning to collaborate, uh, that we uh, come together and finish a project that he had started actually in the early 1990s. So the, the genesis of this, this book goes to uh, early 1990s when, when both uh, uh, Judge Crockett and uh, Ernie Goodman, who you'll probably hear more about later, uh, were still alive. Uh, so he started that project, uh, did all of the, a lot of the early research, uh, interviewed uh, both Crockett and, and Goodman, uh, and then he just got honest. He got to a point where he just, uh, uh, other things eclipsed this project. And uh, uh, so we picked it back up maybe about five years ago. Uh, and uh, I had to, to dive back in. I had to learn what uh, what Ed knew. Uh, we kind of negotiated what a, what an arc of the story would be, uh, and then started to collaborate. And, and I'd sort of uh, he wrote the first half uh, before he uh, uh, stopped, and then uh, we collaboratively worked on, on the second half of the book. But it's been uh, it's been a lot of fun. Ed's just a great guy. He he founded the Damon J. Keith. Uh, collection of African-American legal history here at, at Wayne Law. Uh, and uh, I inherited that position and, and we extended that to, to be the, the key center uh, for uh, civil rights. So we have a, a lot in common. Well, as you know, uh, I am an editor with the ABA Journal and for the American Bar Association, the legal community of African-American lawyers in Michigan has a, a real special uh, status for us. The first African-American ABA president came from the Detroit area, Dennis Archer, and our president right now, Reginald Turner. He also was a Detroit lawyer who came up in this community. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about Michigan and this community that came together? It's it's so fascinating. Um, And George Crockett was such a huge part of it. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the role of, of progressive lawyering in Detroit uh, goes back a century uh, and really just amazing heroes. Uh, you know, if you look at that early period, you really say the three most important lawyers in Detroit uh, were Marie Sugar, uh, Ernie Goodman and George Crockett. Uh, but uh, that just started it. And you got to think about uh, Mayor Archer and, and, and Reggie Turner. Uh, but there's a through line between that. I mean, if you were to ask Dennis Archer who his mentor was or one of his most important mentors, uh, he would point to, to George Crockett. Uh, and indeed, uh, Mayor Archer was the campaign manager for for Crockett's first run for Congress. Uh, and I was at a, a program that Reggie was speaking at uh, during Black History Month here at, at Wayne Law. Uh, and Reggie just speaks openly how how Mayor Archer right is 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 one of his most important mentors. Uh, so in addition to the sort of rich history of, of black lawyers uh, and lawyering in, in the city of Detroit, uh, you have this really interesting uh, through line that goes from Crockett to Archer to Turner. Right. So this really shows that these legacies are critical, uh, but it also shows how important it is to have black lawyers. I mean, because uh, uh, one of the things Crockett was arguing his whole life is the need for for more black lawyers and more black judges and. Uh, 
uh, you just sort of imagine with, without Crockett, there might not have been uh, as successful an archer. Uh, without a, such a successful archer, there may not have been such a, a wonderful uh, Reggie Turner. So you got to start thinking about all the absence that are there, right? How many great uh, potential black lawyers did we miss uh, because they didn't have uh, the guidance and mentoring of, of those three heroes? So let's get to the life of George Crockett because we've been talking around it, but uh, he did not start out in Michigan. He actually uh, was born in Florida. Can you tell us the early years of George W. Crockett Jr.? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the, the Crockett family uh, only is one generation away from from slavery on, on both sides of his, his parentage. Uh, and on his father's side, there was this interesting kind of, 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 of trek going north, right? So uh, they actually, before uh, the end of the Civil War, uh, had uh, self-emancipated uh, and gone from Maryland to Delaware, uh, where the family uh, uh, remained as uh, sort of the center of their lives. So, so it was really a love affair uh, of George's father, who met uh, uh, his mother, Minnie, uh, in Delaware. Uh, and then uh, she went back to Florida, where she was from. So uh, following his heart, uh, he went south, uh, uh, where he has not necessarily been familiar. Uh, and uh, they started uh, their family in uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Uh, and George uh, Jr. Uh, was born in, in 1909, uh, having to deal with all of the segregation of, of Jim Crow, uh, in a pretty hostile Florida. Uh, but he had that family tie in the North. So growing up, he always had this interesting uh, uh, dual exposure of family and life experiences in the North. Uh, not that that was free of discrimination, uh, but then having to, to navigate, you know, some of the extreme forms of Jim Crow in the South. And what did eventually bring him to Michigan? Yeah, so interesting stories. I mean, so uh, uh, he went to Stanton High School. Uh, we might not think that's a big deal, but there were really only uh, about a dozen uh, black high schools in the entire South during this period. So the ability to actually get a high school diploma uh, was significant. Uh, and then he went off to, to Morehouse College, uh, and all the Morehouse men out there know how uh, that defined the rest of his life. Uh, but then he decided, there's a wonderful part of the, the, the book where he, he's in a, a, an empty classroom up on the chalkboard and he's going to decide, is he going to be a dentist uh, or is he going to be a lawyer? Uh, and, and thankfully, the, the law won out uh, for George. Uh, and then he obviously wanted to go to the best law school he could get into. Uh, uh, he was targeting a Harvard Law School uh, until he found out how much it cost. Uh, and about the same time, he was reading a story uh, about the University of Michigan Law School and, and what a great reputation it had, but also uh, it was relatively much cheaper. Uh, so George applied to the University of Michigan. He had support from his family, and he needed support from an extended family to be able to pay the tuition. Uh, he worked uh, well after he was counseled not to because he had to to pay the bills. Uh, and he was the only uh, African-American law graduate in, in 1934 from the University of Michigan. So one of the defining through lines for George's career uh, was this fight for labor rights, and it ended up defining how people saw him as well. How did he become involved uh, as an attorney with defending uh, labor rights activists uh, and communists in a period that was extremely unfriendly to communists? Yeah. So, I mean, the... People have this view of communism in America, and, and we've, we've made such a boogeyman out of it uh, that we don't recognize the complexity uh, of a lot of those political divides. 
so, I mean, one example is the Communist Party uh, was always standing up for racial justice at a time where nobody else was. Uh, and so if you were fighting for racial justice uh, and you were looking for allies, uh, uh, it was a pretty short bench. Uh, but specifically to, to, to how Crockett got involved in labor, uh, and this precedes the, the work that he was done defending uh, the Communist Party in the United States versus Dennis in, in the late 40s, uh, that uh, uh, he went in terms of after graduating from Michigan back to Florida to take the bar. Uh, and there's a story where they actually put a, a table outside of the uh, Senate chambers, which was a traditional place where people took the bar exam because uh, they wouldn't let a black man sit in the uh, Senate chambers uh, 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 at the state level uh, and take the exam. But he passed the bar. Uh, he moves up to West Virginia, uh, gets involved in, in legal practice, but also politics, uh, and shifts his party affiliation in, in 1939 or 38 uh, from Republican to Democrat and campaigned openly for the Democratic Senate campaign. Uh, and the Democratic candidate won, and the kind of political payoff was a position in the U.S. Labor Department. Uh, so George becomes the very first African-American lawyer to work at the Department of Labor in 1939 uh, and was one of the highest ranking uh, black lawyers in, in the New Deal era. Uh, and we hit the glass ceiling there where he was told he couldn't be promoted because if he was promoted, he would be supervising white lawyers. Uh, he jumped over to the newly formed uh, Fair Employment Practices uh, Commission uh, and one is one of their first uh, hearing examiners in, in 1943. Uh, and by hook and by crook, he gets connected with uh, R.J. Thomas, who was the president of the UAW, uh, and in 1943 is given a, a, a very important position in the UAW uh, fighting discrimination inside the union. Uh, and that's what brought him back to, to Detroit uh, and started him on a, 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 his labor career. And for people who may not be as familiar with the UAW, that's the United Auto Workers Union. I'm sure my Detroit bias here. Yes, yes. <laughs> I'm like, there are people who aren't from Michigan who will listen to this. <laughs> And now I, I have to get to one of the cases that defined at least the early part of his career as an attorney. You brought it up, Dennis versus the United States. This was fascinating. I was surprised. I really hadn't heard about it. And especially now having heard about it, I'm kind of shocked that it is still good law in that it has not been overturned. Uh, can you take us through the, the real journey that is Dennis versus the United States? Yeah, you got to start thinking about sort of World War II is coming to an end, uh, and the Cold War, which is a, a real thing, uh, is is taking over uh, American politics. Uh, one manifestation was that there was a, a, a purge by Walter Ruther of people he suspected of being too uh, liberal or leftist from the UAW. So uh, in 1947, uh, George Crockett gets thrown out of the UAW, Maury Sugar gets thrown out of the UAW, and, and Ernie Goodman. Right. Uh, and uh, uh, Sugar is in New York uh, representing the Dennis defendants. Right. And, and, and the case was all about uh, the United States uh, Department of Justice uh, arresting and criminally charging uh, the entire top leadership of the U.S. Communist Party. Right. And you got to kind of step back and say that would be the equivalent of of of, of arresting and criminally charging, uh, you know, the, the Republican National uh, uh, Conference right? the RNC or the DNC 
or if you want to try a slightly different analogy, uh, arresting all of the leadership of, of the Green Party in the United States uh, and, and, and charging them. Uh, and nobody would touch the case with a 10-foot pole. I mean, this is going to be, uh, you're a lawyer, uh, you're going to take this case on, you know that you're going to have a tremendous uh, backlash against you. Uh, the attorney general at the time was uh, uh, was uh, t- saying that anybody that took these cases should be taken to the woodshed, right? And there's this conscious effort uh, to, to, to really be shaming lawyers who were willing to represent them. Uh, well, Maurice Sugar was involved in the case, uh, and uh, it was important to the Communist Party that there be a black lawyer on the defense team, right? So uh, Sugar calls uh, 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 Crockett, uh, and, and Crockett's actually painting his living room when he gets the call uh, and contemplates. And he really says as a matter of principle, uh, really not only was the Communist Party there to, to defend the rights uh, of uh, African Americans at, at, at many important points, uh, that he had an ethical obligation as a lawyer uh, to defend those people who were accused of crimes and, and didn't have defense. So in a very principled understanding of his own view of his lawyerly ethics, uh, agreed to, to take the case on. And just to jump in here, this is not a decision he's making lightly at this point in time. He's married. He has children. Were all three of his children born at this point? Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, he's sitting down there and, and they try to make it a family decision. So they're sort of all going through this. And uh, uh, his family, which was really one of the backbones of his life, uh, were supportive of the decision he made, uh, knowing the risks. Uh, and, and his wife, who was just an amazing person on her own and, and, uh, and a physician, uh, knew the consequences this would have on, on her early stages of building a practice. You know, but, but again, this notion of principled courage to find so much of Crockett's life uh, that he was, uh, he was going to do what he thought was right. Uh, and so he got on the train uh, and went to New York. Uh, and as you said, U.S. versus Dennis, while we don't focus it on it today, uh, it was uh, the longest criminal trial uh, in history to that date. Uh, and this was in all of the headlines. Uh, and uh, it was a real circus. Uh, so it was this, uh, you know, it was one of the first uh, trials of the last century. It also involved the idea of a clear and present danger and what that could mean. Uh, and they applied this to the 11 men who are defendants in this case. Could you talk a little bit about um, the lower court decision with Judge Medina and then the Supreme Court case that followed? Yeah. So, um, you know, if if people are exposed to U.S. versus Dennis today in law school, it's, it's usually kind of as a, uh, a footnote to the treatment of the First Amendment. Right. In, in the bigger picture, if you try to make it as simple as possible, uh, the, the, the folks were being uh, uh, charged not for what they did, right, but for what they believed. Right? And, and we all know, the lawyers in, in the audience know, uh, the whole point of the First Amendment is, is uh, to, to let people talk uh, and say what they think, uh, even if, if that's contrary to the mainstream. Uh, and uh, the whole point of criminal law is to criminalize um, actions, right, or, or preparations for actions. Uh, and so in many respects, United States versus Dennis was the absolute low point uh, of First Amendment protections uh, and created uh, uh, some pretty bad law that had to be fixed up later. Uh, but it was all it was all politically charged. So there, there was no way uh, that uh, uh, these particular defendants were not going to be convicted. I mean, that was sort of a, of a done deal. Uh, and uh, what happened there, I want to sort of, of, of prelude some of the other drama. Uh, after they were convicted, right, the, the judge says he has some unfinished business, right? And, and after the jury is uh, let out, the unfinished business for Judge Medina uh, was to take all the defense bar up uh, 
uh, uh, in front of him and summarily uh, charge them with uh, criminal contempt uh, of court uh, and send them uh, sentence them to jail. Right. So uh, one of Crockett's rewards for standing for his principle was not only to, to lose a, an unwinnable case, uh, but to be uh, uh, held in contempt and, and, and sentenced to prison for uh, zealously representing uh, particular clients that nobody else in the country would be willing to defend. And this was not, hey, you're going to cool your heels in jail for you know overnight or a weekend. This was a a serious sentence. This was four four months, wasn't it, in prison? Yeah. So I mean, the, the sentences vary, but Crockett's sentence was was for four months, right? But what that immediately did was was set up these two important uh, legal challenges that will end up in the Supreme Court. Uh, certainly, the appeal in United States versus Dennis, where uh, there's a really kind of intriguing Second Circuit opinion, uh, where Jerome Frank, who is typically viewed as is one of our uh, uh, progressive heroes. Uh, on the judge uh, uh, judiciary uh, actually voted to uh, uh, uphold the convictions, right? And, and it, that really tortured him and is one of the opinions he would later write uh, was one of the things he regretted uh, as a judge, but uh, got affirmed on the Second Circuit, although a split decision, uh, and then uh, goes up to uh, the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court upholds the convictions uh, and introduces that kind of clear and present danger test, which basically says if, if the danger is very serious, uh, then, uh, you know, Know, the, the ability of the government to suppress that form of speech is, is much greater, which is a, a very different sort of orientation to uh, the First Amendment that will emerge uh, after these cases are really winnowed back and, and become dead letters. Well, we are going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. But when we return, I'm going to ask Peter Hammer to share with us some of the writing that George Crockett did from prison uh, and hear a little bit from the man himself. As a lawyer, ever wish you could be in two places at once? You could take a call when you're in court, capture a lead during a meeting. That's where Posh comes in. We're live virtual receptionists who answer and transfer your calls so you never miss an opportunity. And the Posh app lets you control when your receptionist steps in. So if you can't answer, Posh can. And if you've got it, Posh is just a tap away. With Posh, you can save as much as 40% off your current service provider's rates. Start your free trial today at Posh.com. Welcome back to this episode of the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls. I'm here with Peter J. Hammer, author of No Equal Justice, The Legacy of Civil Rights Icon George W. Crockett Jr. And Peter, as I said before our ad break, I would love to hear from George Crockett in his own words. And he wrote some very effective and impactful, um, emotionally impactful letters from prison. So, Peter, can you share with us a little bit of the writing that George Crockett Jr. did from prison? Yeah, so there's these amazing letters back and forth uh, between George and his wife, Ethelene, uh, and some letters between George uh, and, and the children. Uh, and here's just kind of a, a sampling. You just sort of get a sense of, of really what how important family was to him, uh, but how close his relationship was uh, with his wife. Uh, so this is uh, dated May 18th, uh, 1952, which was pretty early on in the uh, uh, prison experience for George. He said, how is my darling? He said, it is Sunday about, about 9.45 a.m. Uh, so the family should just be about ready to start the day. I suppose George, this would be George III, his son, and Ethelene, uh, his daughter, uh, are making breakfast, uh, and you are in for a cold cup of coffee. Uh, we had breakfast at 7 a.m. and have finished our chores for the day. Uh, the day is rainy. 
uh, and will be inside all day. And the fellows will be telling one lie after another and disputing all sorts of inconsequential points. I'll spend my time reading, except when I'm requested to settle some form of argument. One of my corridor mates comforted me this morning uh, with a comment that uh, he had been convicted uh, and that uh, my case and his was nothing but persecution. Uh, and he says, parenthetically smiling. Uh, uh, his is an income tax charge in New York. Uh, and the guy was in for leading a ring of basketball fixers for what he said that we lawyers, right, were likewise victims of filthy politics. Uh, we have a lot of friends, right, uh, but we're just all in the wrong places. Uh, and he just had this sort of interesting, dry sense of humor uh, and was a wonderful kind of observer of, of people's uh, of comments. Uh, and one of my other favorite lines uh, that, that I use uh, in my own life now, uh, he says, uh, it, it, all you have is time. When you're in prison, all you have is time. You know, no, no need to worry. No need to hurry. All you've got is time. Well, having been through that and missed four months of his young children's lives and uh, being away from any sort of practice and, and ability, you may have thought that, you know, many people would have been dissuaded or turned to something else. But George didn't. He was a vocal opponent of McCarthyism. Uh, he never was a communist, you know, never joined the Communist Party, but uh, maintained his convictions in this area. Uh, could you talk a little bit about what George experienced when he left prison? Yeah, so you got to remember that, that the minute he's charged with contempt, uh, there are people in Michigan trying to, to seek his disbarment. Uh, and uh, uh, so he gets the, the kind of leave that is they're appealing United States versus Satcher, which was a, a due process claim that says that uh, the same judge that's so angry at you can't just summarily charge you to court, but you have to actually hand it over to an impartial judge, which later becomes the, the law. Uh, he, so he's fighting that. That gets upheld, right? Uh, and so he goes to prison. And the minute he comes back out of prison, uh, he's got to fight for his for his uh, 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 for his bar card, uh, his ability to to, to practice law, uh, and that's his own protracted battle. Uh, but while he's fighting that protracted battle, he doesn't step back from the sidelines. I mean, he's still there uh, defending folks who are charged uh, uh, by the House Un-American Activities Committee. Uh, there were hearings in, in, in 1952 here in Detroit. Uh, one of his most favorite uh, uh, and famous clients uh, was uh, uh, Coleman A. Young, who was a, uh, a labor leader at that time uh, before turning to politics and becoming Detroit's first black mayor. Uh, but just incredibly contested uh, fights uh, protecting people's rights. Uh, and that was in the HUAC hearings. That was in what became known as the Michigan Six, which is kind of the state level uh, uh, efforts to get rid of the, the state Communist Party leaders uh, after United States versus Dennis, uh, to defending people whose immigration rights were, were being threatened as well. So after he did all of this work up in Michigan, what was his next step? So as he transitions from the 1950s to the 1960s, uh, Crockett and, and the National Lawyers Guild were incredibly important in pivoting from fighting the, the sort of Red Scare into fighting the, the fight for, for civil rights in the South. Um, so he spearheaded all sorts of important actions uh, to get lawyers from the North to be going defending the rights of people arrested in, in civil rights protests. Uh, and he headed uh, the uh, NLG's office in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, during Mississippi summer, where all of the uh, voter registration was taking place. Uh, we've got to give your readers, you know, something to go to the book for. And uh, we'll kind of leave that part of the book as something that to, to tell them that's important and uh, another reason to, to dive into it. 
but it is it is hair raising and uh, life threatening at points. So, yeah, no. So, I mean, people remember uh, uh, the three civil rights martyrs uh, and what they don't know in the story is that uh, they were working with Crockett. Uh, they went out to investigate that church bombing to try to find evidence to build a, a civil rights case. Uh, and one of the last people they spoke to uh, was Crockett on the phone, which again just shows how he finds himself in the middle uh, of all of these powerful and, and in many instances tragic uh, episodes in our, our legal history. And we would be remiss if we didn't talk a little bit about uh, the National Lawyers Guild. Again, as someone who's employed by the American Bar Association and you know, we should always face our face our pasts. In 1912, the ABA explicitly restricted membership to only white lawyers, and that wasn't rescinded until 1943, and no black lawyer was admitted for membership until 1950. But obviously, there were black lawyers uh, doing incredible work around the country, and they needed organizations that they could use to um, further their careers and, and to fight for justice. Can you talk a little bit about his role in the National Lawyers Guild? Yeah. So, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. The, the thing that distinguished the National Lawyers Guild was, was an integrated uh, national bar association from the very beginning. Uh, so it gave uh, uh, lawyers like Crockett a, a, a place to go uh, and to be able to work in a, uh, in a, in a cross-racial coalition. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, there's some interesting, you know, politics in, that's described in the book between the, the, the National Lawyers Guild, the National Bar Association, the, the American Bar Association, uh, as they're jockeying for different roles to play in, in the civil rights movement. Uh, and one of the ironies was, uh, and this is sort of, of of the Guild having to live with that same kind of, of red baiting uh, that Crockett had to live with for their uh, defense of, of folks in, in, in the Red Scare. Um, uh, the ABA got very involved uh, in, in Mississippi Summer and uh, uh, other work in the South, largely to make sure that the National Lawyers Guild was not there uh, uh, as the only entity. So this interesting kind of, of rivalry uh, and opposition, uh, of, 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 I think, in a, in a very positive way, uh, encouraged the ABA and, and other national organizations to be taking a far more active role in the South uh, than they might have otherwise in, in the absence of the Guild leadership. I don't think that many people would necessarily see this coming, but George Crockett Jr.'s next segment of life, after you know being a lawyer with a lot of these very controversial cases, he did become a judge. Could you talk a little bit about his judicial career, how he came to sit on the recorder court, and what the recorder court is? Because I don't think that Everyone outside of Michigan may understand um, that term. Yeah. So the recorder's court was an interesting uh, uh, creature here. Uh, it was uh, hearing criminal cases from the city of Detroit. And so that meant that uh, the, the judges who were elected were elected from uh, Detroit. Uh, it also meant that the jury pool was coming directly from Detroit. Which created uh, the, the the notion is the demography in Detroit is changing, uh, and the number of African Americans are are increasing as a percentage. Uh, their ability to then win elections changes. Their ability to to be on juries changes in ways that are much more favorable to to, to black defendants, uh, where they finally might get a, a jury of their peers. Uh, so George runs in 1966, right? And uh, the United States versus Dennis, the the, the lawyer for the criminal for the Communist Party, uh, will haunt him in all 
of his elections. Uh, and there's an amazing uh, a poster that came out, and you can trace this back, and it has been traced back and verified uh, to J. Edgar Hoover. So J. Edgar Hoover's up there uh, trying to make sure that George Crockett doesn't win uh, his campaign to be a judge on recorder's court and is just uh, putting all of this kind of, of, of anti-communist hysteria back in the air. Um, but but black Detroiters knew George Crockett, and, and black Detroiters trusted George Crockett. Uh, and he was such a man of, of such integrity and, 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 and principle that uh, I think a lot of folks that might agree not agree with what he had done respected him for his choices and, and as a person. So he, he won the election and now becomes a, a judge. But think about, you know, Detroit, 1966, 1967, the late 60s. Uh, he gets on the bench. Uh, you know, literally uh, six months before the Detroit Rebellion in 1967. Uh, and that was where he, again, starts to distinguish himself as a man of courage uh, and principle. So the prosecutors were, were basically demanding that judges require a $10,000 bond uh, for all people who are detained uh, in the wake of the rebellion. Uh, and Crockett thought that was uh, was not individualized justice. That was sort of 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 of, of group uh, criminalization. Uh, so he set up a very innovative process, relying upon his sort of network of folks uh, in the legal community uh, to ensure that there were individualized determinations of of, of bail uh, for all of the people that came before him, and stood up against that kind of wave uh, in 1967. Uh, but probably his most important case uh, would probably be the New Bethel case uh, that would come two years later. And I definitely want to talk about the New Bethel incident because it does bring up so many of these things and really seems to be so formative uh, for him as a judge and then in his later life. I also want to just let listeners know one of the great things about No Equal Justice, the book, is how many, uh, not just family photos, professional photos, but also political cartoons and other um, interesting illustrations you and Edward Littlejohn were able to find and include in the book. Uh, and, and I, as a reader, just really liked being able to see that. And it is fascinating how political cartoonists were portraying him or judges like him. Yeah. And I just give another plug for, for Ed. All of this is coming out of his collection. Uh, and, and Judge Crockett had left all of his, basically all of his papers to, to, to Ed's stewardship. Uh, so, so we had access to things and, and, and are able to give the reader that kind of sense of what it would look like to, to pick up the newspaper or what would these campaign flyers look like. So uh, I appreciate the comment because it really does give them um, uh, a whole wide range of different uh, emotive exposures to, to, to what was happening in that very contested period. Absolutely. So the New Bethel incident. Again, people outside of Detroit may never have heard of this. Um, I was new to it myself. Can you talk about uh, the New Bethel incident and the case that followed and the decisions that uh, Judge Crockett was being asked to make at that time? Yeah. So, um, you know, we can kind of situate this a little bit nationally. So, so New Bethel Baptist Church uh, was the church of Reverend C.L. Franklin. Uh, and you might not have heard of, of C.L. Franklin, but but everybody's heard of Aretha Franklin, right? So this is the church uh, that Aretha was was raised in, right? And and C.L. Franklin was an incredibly important pastor, both on the religious side, but also on the civil rights and and and, and civil justice side. Um, so he had agreed to rent uh, his church out uh, to a group called the Republic of New Africa. 
which was founded in Detroit the year before, uh, which was a, a, a black power organization and, and, and believed in kind of black separatist uh, politics. Uh, and they were holding their second annual convention at the New Bethel Baptist Church. Uh, and there was a, a, an altercation uh, outside, right, where the kind of, of, of honor guard of, of the, the, the Republic of New Africa uh, have a confrontation with a, a squad car that's coming by. Uh, shots are fired. Uh, tragically, one of the police officers was killed and, and another one was wounded. Uh, but suggesting, uh, and it's also been kind of proven as, as records have come out afterwards, uh, there were almost as many uh, uh, police informants from the federal and state and local police forces uh, as there were uh, Republican New Africa members. Uh, and, and likely, the best story I can tell, though I can't verify this is speculation, uh, that uh, they didn't stop the patrol car going through, right? The last thing they wanted was that patrol car going through, right? And that creates this exchange of gunfire. Uh, and literally within minutes, there are uh, scores and scores of police uh, at the New Bethel per, uh, Church, um, and they just invade the church with guns blazing. Uh, and it's really amazing that, that nobody was killed inside of, of the church, although people were injured. Uh, and then just two uh, years after we had a, a rebellion and riot uh, in Detroit in 1967 because of a mass arrest, uh, the police are now going to engage the second mass arrest of, of some 144 uh, men, women, and children uh, from the New Bethel Baptist Church. Uh, and they take them all down to the to the first police precinct, and this is you know this is happening about uh, midnight, right? And so uh, 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 Jimmy Del Rio, who is a, a black state uh, representative, and C. L. Franklin at about five in the morning uh, are knocking on uh, Judge Crockett's door, right? And this is a, this is a Sunday morning, uh, and uh, uh, Crockett gets dressed. Uh, Crockett takes a, a, a writ of habeas corpus uh, in hand, uh, and Crockett is down in the police station uh, by six o'clock, uh, demanding to see the, the police commissioner, demanding to have lists of all those who were arrested. Uh, and then he starts holding court inside the police precinct, right? Uh, and he's having the, the people who are detained come forward. Uh, and if the police are not able to produce evidence uh, of why they should be held, uh, he starts to release them. Right, and now the county prosecutor shows up and 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 gets into a, a, a tizzy, uh, and starts demanding that uh, uh, that that these people not be released, and 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 Crockett ends up holding him uh, in contempt of court, uh, and then uh, adjourns the proceeding until the afternoon, where they can actually go to the recorder's court courthouse uh, and continue the process. And he really did win the enmity of the Detroit police from that time. No, it was even before. I mean, the, the, the police, uh, we go back in detail a, a, a case uh, from 1948 uh, of something that could come out of the headlines today where the police uh, 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 are shooting and killing a, a, a black teenager. Uh, so relations with the police have always been bad in Detroit. Uh, and, and, and Crockett would say, you know, that, uh, uh, that he knew police lied uh, because they lied to him his whole life. Uh, and so I had a much different set of life experiences to assess the credibility of, of police witnesses. Uh, but the minute uh, that the, the New Bethel incident happened where uh, you had the mass arrest, you had uh, Crockett coming and, and holding that habeas corpus proceeding, uh, the, the police are just up in a, in a frenzy. The police are actually picketing the courthouse. Uh, the police are out there with, 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 with you know, demonstration signs against Crockett. Uh, but that triggers a backlash on, on the black side uh, of politics. Uh, and the Black United Front is formed, uh, which has tremendous solidarity 
party where the groups that are typically, you know, not always in agreement uh, are agreeing and standing up to protect Crockett. Right. And so uh, there are a lot of people who say it. And, and, and I agree uh, th- that kind of, of black solidarity that was there in support of Crockett uh, really was part of the wave that brought Coleman Young into to, to office, you know, uh, just a few years later. But again, he was facing disbarment as a lawyer. Uh, now he's facing impeachment cases uh, and has to, again, defend uh, his very livelihood and, and his very position uh, against this attack, uh, uh, not just from the police officers, but, but really the whole white political establishment, uh, including Mayor Kavanaugh, who was supposed to be somewhat progressive, and uh, and the, the governor uh, uh, saying that there should be judicial uh, tenure hearings uh, brought against him. And again, I'd like to bring us back to the community in Detroit of these Black attorneys and the other attorneys who are working with them. And, you know, there was not one unified set of beliefs, you know. Uh, George Crockett may be defending the rights of these Black nationalists, but he didn't necessarily feel that the way they were going about things was you know, the way that, that he would. He did seem to believe in uh, you know, approaching change through the established framework of existing laws uh, and just applying them correctly. Yeah. But no, that I... definitely wasn't the outlook of people like Coleman Young, who yeah. uh, was like, no, we need to utterly change the system. Could you talk a little bit about um, what the community was having discussions about during that time, uh, you know, the differing beliefs that uh, these Black attorneys were talking out or putting into action? Yeah. So so I love the, the parallel you're showing between his defense of the Communist Party uh, as a lawyer and his actions of protecting the, the defendants who were the Republican New Africa, because it's the same thing. Right, that he doesn't agree with the politics of either, uh, but he agrees that their rights should be protected. Right, uh, and he had this just amazing belief in the power of the Constitution. Right, and that goes back to to a story we tell about uh, his high school debate, uh, protecting or, or talking about the the sort of post emancipation uh, civil rights uh, uh, constitutional amendments. Um, he believed that the Constitution if appropriately applied, uh, and he had a very strong belief that, that the black judges were in the best position to be uh, of, of defending and applying those rights uh, out of their lived experiences, he was going to protect their rights. And he believed that the, that the legal change could happen uh, within the context of the parameters of, of the Constitution. Uh, and that stands in sharp contrast. You sort of think about the Republic of New Africa, you think about the rise of, of black power, uh, uh, and uh, there's wonderful exchanges uh, happening at different guild meetings between uh, uh, Richard Henry, uh, who was a, a member of, of the Republic of New Africa, uh, and, and, and Judge Crockett. Uh, and part of what Republic of New Africa wanted was the, the southern states to, to cede uh, their land to create an, a, a new black nation. That's the Republic of New Africa. Uh, and Crockett would just sort of look at that and say, uh, he's not going to give up any square inch of America, right? He says that black people have a right uh, to live and have their rights respected in every single state. Uh, and uh, so we just had a very different orientation about what the politics should be. Um, but I would try to just quibble a little bit. Uh, Coleman Young was was an, a consummate politician. So Coleman Young was, uh, you know, uh, certainly uh, believing in black power with sort of small capital uh, letters uh, uh, and certainly had a, a, a very uh, a progressive uh, set of beliefs uh, about the economy and about labor. 
but uh, but you also have to give uh, Coleman Young credit for just being a, a, an incredibly astute uh, and gifted politician as well. And speaking of politicians, again, as I read the book, I was like, how did this man who takes such controversial risks in order to, um, you know, maintain what he feels is the, is the moral position and advocate for civil rights and, you know, make all of these, again, very controversial decisions with his career, ends up the third part of his professional life is spent in politics. And it's at an age where most people would have retired, uh, but he didn't. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the period of his life where he fully enters um, non-judicial politics? Yeah. So it, he, he decided not to run for a third term on Recorder's Court. So uh, in, in 1978, he steps down from Recorder's Court. Part of that was to spend more time with his wife, who was also going to retire from her medical practice. Uh, and kind of tragically, one of the tragedies in, in the story is that, that she got cancer and, and, and dies. Uh, just as uh, they're both going to, to to retire and spend time together, uh, and uh, he didn't say retired long. He was actually acting uh, city council, corporate council for Detroit. But but he hated retirement. Right? So <laughs> uh, uh, he was seventy years old. Is the age that many of us would consider retirement. Uh, but when Charles Diggs, who was a congressman from Michigan, ran into some some uh, legal and ethical problems, and that seat opened up, uh, Crockett threw his hat in the ring. And while his stances were, 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 were incredibly controversial nationally and maybe statewide, uh, they weren't controversial for black Detroiters, right? Uh, and, and I would say that, 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 that George Crockett and Coleman Young would probably be vying for who was the most popular uh, a person in Detroit at that period. Uh, so when, when, when Crockett decides to run for Congress, and again, this shows how important the drawing of districts are, uh, it was largely a, a, a seat for uh, the city of Detroit. Uh, and so he won uh, election uh, fairly easily and, and had the confidence of knowing that, uh, that his seat was fairly, quote unquote, safe. So while he was a congressperson, uh, he could really uh, uh, play the role which he did assume, which was really becoming more of a conscience of the Congress uh, than somebody that had to really worry about the, the fundraising and the politics and, and the kind of horse trading that uh, that so many other politicians seem to get uh, caught up in. Now, he did say that he, in retrospect, wished he'd started earlier uh, on that path and, and hadn't waited until he was 71 to, to join the U.S. House of Representatives. Um, yeah. But he was on so many committees. He was so busy. He did so much. And as I was you know, finishing this book, um, you and I are speaking on March 22nd. And as we speak, uh, Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson is having her confirmation hearings uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he sat on the House Judiciary Committee. And I just was thinking about those, those parallels. Yeah. And he was a huge advocate of, of the importance of black lawyers. Uh, and we talked about that in the context of, of Mayor Archer and, and, and your current president, Reggie Turner. Uh, but he was also a huge advocate for the importance of black judges. Right. And, and indeed, the National Bar Association uh, started the National Judicial Council uh, in order to kind of, of bring the, the growing number of black judges in, in the late 1960s uh, together uh, and to start to kind of, of, of function as, as a group and give cross support. And, and Crockett was the very first chair of that organization. Um, and so I just would imagine that, that, that how happy 
uh, he would be, uh, not unlike uh, Senator Booker's uh, joy uh, of, of, of imagining the first uh, black woman to, to be on the Supreme Court. Um, but it was not at all just a notion of, of, of phenotype, right? Going back to his sort of trust in law, he really believed that only black judges and by extension, you know, other people who have suffered forms of oppression in this country, only people with that life experience could really find the true depth uh, and meaning of the constitutional principles. Uh, and he really believed that, that black judges were on the vanguard of creating legal protections, legal rights, legal institutions, legal understandings that would be transformative for the entire country. Uh, and uh, so he had a, he had a very a, a well-developed political philosophy on why it was so important to have black lawyers and black judges and, and by extension, uh, uh, lawyers and judges who don't uh, come from, from the, the, the establishment mainstream. Well, Peter, as we wind down this interview, I do want to just say to the listeners, No Equal Justice, the legacy of civil rights icon George W. Crockett Jr., we have given a really flyover view at kind of the arc of George Crockett Jr.'s career, but you get into so many details about his his personal and professional life. There's so much intricacy in this book. Um, great index. I always love a good index in a book. If there was one more thing that you could pull out to, to just give anyone who's listening to this podcast one extra bit about George Crockett Jr., why you felt it was important to work with Edward Littlejohn to create this um, you know, in-depth biography of him, what would that be? What, would, what extra detail would you pull out to just talk about the human being that George W. Crockett Jr. was? Yeah, it would really be that he speaks to, to the issues of our time. Uh, and I was really struck. And, and one of our, our editorial kind of choices was uh, to use a lot of long quotes uh, from from George Crockett so the reader actually can get a sense of, of his voice, right, and, and him speaking to, to the reader. That uh, you think about the issues that we're dealing with today in, in kind of a post-George Floyd uh, world, right, where uh, controversies over critical race theory and controversies over Black Lives Matter uh, we don't have answers to those questions, right? And 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 oftentimes we don't have leaders uh, who are necessarily capable of of, of addressing those needs. Uh, and if you go back and just look at, at Crockett's life and his beliefs and his writings, as I was talking about the importance of, of black lawyers and black judges, um, he provides a voice that's really relevant to our times, right? So, so one of my real hopes is uh, that uh, that folks uh, of, of a younger generation than, than many of the people maybe even listening to, to this podcast um, will stumble into George Crockett uh, and, and will learn from him. Uh, just as that wonderful tradition uh, of learning from our elders uh, and the importance of this sort of cross-generational uh, knowledge. Um, but it's really his relevance for today. I mean, amazing history, no doubt, right? Just sort of, of, of amazing history for six decades. Um, but his wisdom and his words speak to us today. And I think that's just incredibly important. And if readers and listeners wanted to find out more, uh, is there any site that you would point them towards or place that they can pick up No Equal Justice, the legacy of civil rights icon George W. Crockett Jr.? Well, as a matter of pride of place at Wayne State, I would say it's available <laughs> at Wayne State University Press. Uh, but but for your listeners that are Amazon Prime people, uh, 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 I just go directly to Amazon and there's a, a nice page for the book and uh, uh, very easy to, to pick up a copy. 
Uh, and, uh, you know, I just say that, that, that we really wanted them to hear George's voice. Uh, and so if you do pick up a copy, uh, it's not just that little John whose voice is amazing and important or, or my voice. Uh, you're really going to get a very healthy dose of, of hearing directly from Judge Crockett. And, and I think that's one of the most rewarding parts of the book. Well, Peter Hammer, thank you so much for joining us. And to my listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. If there's a book that you'd like me to take a look at as a potential for a future episode, you can always write to us at books at abajournal.com.